0: This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between. And we love telling your stories. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. And we ripped this next story straight out of the headlines of the Wall Street Journal, and it was one of the most popular stories for almost a month running, and We decided to track it down, and today we have on Julie Lawson, the daughter of Sonny and Bryna Hurwitz. They raised their daughters Julie and Freda in Boston. In 2016, after Sonny and Bryna had both died, Julie took a DNA test and later got her sister Freda to do the same, revealing some shocking truths. Julie, let's start off in the beginning. What made you want to take this DNA test, and what happened?
1: With well,
2: just simple curiosity, I had been working on my family tree through Ancestry.com for quite a while, several years. And my mom was still alive, so she could help me quite a bit with her side of the family. It was just always interested me. I never felt rooted. I never knew my, and felt connected family-wise. And I was just curious, and I like to research, and, you know, on those websites, one thing leads to another. So I decided to do my DNA nothing came up that surprised me on my DNA, right? So there was there was no shocker, but there were a couple of names that didn't mean anything to me, and when my DNA matched one of those names, that person reached out to me through ancestry. His name is Larry, and he's a psychologist and lives in Long Island, and it turns out he's my second cousin. We share the same great-grandfather, but we didn't know any of this. But he was curious, and he also had a deep love of family history and ancestry, and had been working on his tree for years, and he noticed my name show up on his list, and he wanted to know if I knew anything, and I knew nothing. And he would say, well, your mom's still alive. Why don't you get her to do the DNA? I said, well, yeah, maybe I'll send her a kit. And he said, your sister, too, because that'll really help. And I'm like, well, my, my sister lives in England. She's a very busy woman. It won't be her priority, but I'll keep bugging her to do it. So Larry and I stayed in touch intermittently, and he'd check in. I couldn't, we couldn't figure it out. We let it go. He never really let it go. So then, two years later, my mom has died, and she wouldn't do the DNA kit, which I never knew why. She didn't want to do it. And then my sister, out of the blue, who's been living in England for 30 years, gets a two-year contract in the United States and decides to move to Falls Church, Virginia, a place neither of us have ever been. She has no business even being in the United States, and she asks if I can come help her get settled and with child care. So I was on a plane, and while I was there, it dawned on me, she still hasn't done the DNA kit. I'm going to get her one. I'm going to make her spit. I'm going to get the kit. She's going to spit, and we'll go from there. So I did. So it was her test that came back with the shocker because that is when the the closest relationship that popped up to her was a man's name that we did not know and it came up as a really close match and we looked his name up on Facebook and there we were staring at a man about 62 years old who looked just like our dad when dad was that age but dad's been gone 11 years and this stranger is looking at us, I'm like, oh, my God, that's Dad. So we realized Dad had an affair. We've got a brother. I have brother. And I know that a lot of people don't see their Facebook private messages, and that's always frustrating. It could sit there forever. But within 20 minutes, he answered. And all I had said was, hmm, looks like we have a DNA match. Would love to talk to you about it. Because we didn't know what he knew. We didn't want to be the ones to shock him. a stranger, saying, you look just like our dad. So we were very delicate about it. And um, I said, well, you know, I'm in Falls Church, Virginia. I live in Phoenix, but I'm visiting my sister and helping her get settled here. have no idea where you are, but we'd love to talk. And he writes back and he says, you're in Falls Church, Virginia. I'm 45 minutes from you. And the next day is Mother's Day. And I say to him, well, this is amazing. You're 45 minutes from us, and I know Mother's Day is tomorrow, but we're not doing anything, and is there any chance you would come over? And he said, let me talk to my fiancé, and got back to me, and he said, yeah, we can be there at noon. Well, my sister had gone to bed. She didn't even know how far I had taken this. So when she wakes up in the morning, I said, we're going to be meeting our half-brother today. He's going to be here about noon with his fiancé. We started gathering pictures of Dad because we know that we're his sisters, but he doesn't know he's coming to meet his sisters. He doesn't know we know his dad, that we grew up with his dad. So Freda had not yet unpacked everything from England. We spent quite a time scurrying around, going through boxes to try and find photos of Dad at different ages. And we did, and we had the stack, and we had it upside down on the dining room table. And the doorbell rang, and we—I opened the door, and it was—I was looking at my dead father. I mean, it was so weird. I mean, it was just—I, I don't know what else to say other than he didn't just resemble dad. It was like dad was standing right there. It—it was—I almost—I think I almost fainted. And, of course, I got emotional, and I had already warned him that I was the emotional one, and Freda was the practical one. So he came in. He sat down at the dining room table. We made small talk. And so at some point I said to him, Dana, why do you think our, what do you think our connection is? What do you think about this whole DNA thing? And he said, well, obviously, we're cousins some kind of way. I'm like, he thinks we're cousins. And I finally said to him, I just leaned into him, and I said, Dana, We are 99.9% sure we are not cousins. We think you're our brother. And I turned over the stack of pictures of dad and now he's looking at these photos of this man who he looks just like. He just went silent, actually. He didn't know what to say. And I mean, I told him, I already loved him. I said, I don't know what kind of person you're gonna turn out to be, but we love dad and we love you and you look just like dad and this is so amazing. And oh, wow, we were so excited never knew who his dad was and his mom died kind of young and each time he had asked her through his youth she would change the subject and at one point he finally stopped asking
0: and when we come back we're going to continue with julie lawson's story my goodness the scary side of dna tests but in the end a truth revealed a secret unveiled julie lawson's story continues here on our american stories We continue with our American stories into our conversation with Julie Lawson she and her sister had taken DNA tests and found out that they had a half-brother so you find out in the end that there was a secret about an infidelity of your fathers and so let's talk about how that secret affected you and your sister
2: well when we first the first secret of finding our brother was very exciting to find him and and welcome him, and that he lived 45 minutes away was amazing, and my sister has a 12-year-old son, and so now her son has an uncle, and, you know, they haven't lived in the United States, and, and so this was great. So we were just happy-go-lucky. We have this new brother and his fiance, and it was really exciting.
0: Let's talk about th- this gentleman. How did this secret affect him? He had to be relieved, in a sense. He finally knew who his dad was.
2: <laughs> At first, he did he seemed kind of, I mean, he was in shock, of course, because we knew longer than he did. We had several hours to be thinking about it all. Um, he's a very laid-back, kind of cool, quiet guy, like Dad, actually. And, um, I, you know, he was speechless, and yet he seemed delighted that he has siblings, that he's finding out this truth. He had He had not been on a quest at all to find out anything. He had sort of, like, given up on it. So um, to, he said, and he grew up an only child. So he seemed really excited about all of it. I mean, it was weird, and it was, you know, I don't, I don't know the adjectives to describe the whole thing because there's so, it, it's like an avalanche of emotions.
0: You, so that night, you had this puzzlement you had to deal with.
2: So what happened was, because I used to look at my matches pretty regularly to see if anybody new popped up, um, in a close-related uh, match, like a first, second cousin or something. I wasn't interested in sixth to eighth cousins. But I would check it. So I was kind of familiar with the same names showing up. You know, they do it in order of closeness. So I kind of knew the names. And when he came up on my sister's uh DNA, I don't know, some time went by, and I thought, you know, that name isn't familiar. Here's this guy. He looks like Dad. I don't remember it showing up on my list. So... I looked at my list, and he wasn't on it. And I thought, well, maybe because he's a half-sibling, again, I, my ignorance, I don't know how DNA worked, I thought maybe we didn't share enough DNA for him to show up on my list, but he could show up on my sister's list. But that was my naivete and ignorance and... and. Um, the cousin that had been in touch with me from my first DNA results who was asking me all the time, how do you think we're connected? Will your mother do the test? Will your sister do the test? This was Larry. And so I called him like two days into this, and I said, well, something has come up. And I told him, now he's a psychologist, so I told him that this guy isn't on my list. but He's on my sister's list, and he looks just like our dad. And Larry got it right away; He was really good over the years at looking at the puzzle pieces of his stuff, and he just it dawned on him. Well, if he's not on my list, then they have to have different fathers. Her sister and she are not full sisters because this guy is related to her sister and not her, so the two sisters can't be full sisters he 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 was the the puzzle fixer; he brought all the pieces to the table. And he wasn't going to tell me at first because he knew it was going to change my life. And he said, have you looked at the centimorgans between Dana and your sister? And I said, no, I don't know. What, what's a centimorgan? It sounds like an insect with a hundred legs or something. <laughs> and and he said, no, it's a way of quantifying DNA. A certain range of centimorgans means you're a half-sibling. A certain is a full-sibling, or parent-child relationship. So... Um, I looked at the centimorgans between him and my sister, and they fell into the correct range of half-siblings. At some point, Larry said, did you look at the centimorgans between you and your sister? And I thought, my first reaction was, well, why would I do that? I don't even care about my centimorgans between me and my sister. And then I realized in a split second he was telling me something. I'm like, what is he meaning and i looked at the centimorgans and we had the same amount of centimorgans as she had with her other half sibling so i was a half sibling and that was a shocking moment we didn't cry because oh now we're only half siblings and it wasn't like that if she had had no dna she'd always be my full sister we cried i think the shock of it all in that split second we were learning that we didn't have the same father and that my dad wasn't my dad I mean he was my dad but he wasn't my father and that you know it still feels fresh obviously I didn't even know I still had this emotion in me but that split second is when we were freaking out like what does this all mean there's more to this and if he's my new brother is now not my brother because we share a different dad and my dad isn't my father who's my father oh my god went from this incredible joy and delight it was like having dad around
0: and to suddenly not you you now have got to be curious again it's almost like what what really happened here who's my in your at this late stage in your life you're asking yourself who's my daddy and who did that turn out to be, Julie? Oh. How, did this, how did this come to be that you made this discovery?
2: This was to Larry helping me with all these puzzle pieces. Man, my little cogs were so busy turning. I was angry. I was so hurt. I had a night of being in a fetal position, wailing like a baby to my mother. I mean, why? What, what did you do? What is this about? and and now it was starting to make sense that all of this was explaining why she treated me the way she did. It was so intensely primal. A primal therapist would have had a ball with me. It was unbelievable. You talk about cathartic and so painful and so shocking. It's, Like your whole life and people, I've heard people say, well, nothing really changed. Your dad's always going to be your dad. Your sister's always going to be your sister. And I want to strangle those people. (laughs) I'm trying to be cool about it. They just don't get it. Of course, the content of my relationships don't change, but the context does. And that's shocking. It's just so much shock to the system of feeling so ungrounded and also getting an explanation at the same time for your torturous
0: youth. You and your mom had a tough relationship, and oh. now, you, now you're understanding why. Your mom had a secret, too. That And by the way, she had to bear that secret, and that was no duck walk either for her. I, I'm sure it wasn't.
2: I know, so I went through that range of emotions, trying to put myself in the shoes of this young woman and what she was going through. I mean, so you want to have compassion for everybody in their story. I mean, we're all so damaged to some extent, and some of us get to process it and go on and do great, and some don't process it at all, and she was one that never processed any of it. She was a very immature woman throughout her life. And she had a lot of wonderful qualities and very loved by a lot of people. And she was a young girl, and she was in love with this boy that she was dating. And she wasn't in love with her. She was just a nice girl. And they were all friends in a small circle that double dated. And she wanted him to marry her. Her best friends were 17 and 18, and they were all engaged. She wanted to be engaged. She wanted to get out of her parents' house. She hated her stepmother. Um... And she fell in love with this boy, and he wasn't into her like that. And so they stopped dating. He told her, you know, if you want to get married, you really better find somebody else because I'm going to have a life of adventures. I've got things I want to do. And she went on and married my dad.
0: And when we come back, we're going to continue this remarkable story with Julie Lawson. Again, this was ripped off the headlines of the Wall Street Journal and was one of the most popular stories of the year and when we continue more with Julie Lawson a DNA test turns her life and her sisters upside down this is our american stories return to Our American Stories, Julie Lawson has been telling us her family's story. One day, she and her sister took a DNA test. Her sister showed as having a half-brother, but Julie, through the help of her cousin Larry, soon realized that she and her sister were half-sisters as well. So now she's left wondering, who's my daddy? Julie's mother fell in love in high school, but her boyfriend at the time was just not interested. So her mother married another man she didn't love. Julie. Tell us what happened next.
2: About a year and a half into the marriage, she'd already had her first child, my brother. She called her ex-boyfriend up. She heard he was, I don't know, she she called him up because she wanted to go for a cup of coffee, supposedly they got together. And um, they were commiserating. She was telling him that she wasn't happy in her marriage. It wasn't what she thought it would be or should be. And they had a one-night thing, and he told her afterwards that he felt really guilty and that they shouldn't do this anymore. And he said, look, you know, you're married, you have a child, and this has got to stop. You've got to go take care of your marriage. And so they never talked again, and I guess a few months later she called him to say she was pregnant. And she didn't exactly say she knew it was his or thought it was his. Supposedly, she was just saying she was pregnant. And he, being 23 years old and tired of being kind of chased, um, he said to her, he said, you know what? He he thought she was trying to trap him. And he told her, you've got to take care of your marriage and don't call me anymore.
0: Well, at 23 years old, he had... His own mind didn't want to exactly. even think about that.
2: So Larry in New York, the psychologist who's my second cousin, has been trying to put these pieces together, and he, when he realizes, and of course I get past the, him telling me that I obviously have a different father, he went back and looked at our mutual matches on the DNA list, and he knows a lot of the family members, even though there's two sides of the family that haven't talked in decades. He's helping me with these pieces, and he's looking at the names of the matches, and he's clever enough to also go on Facebook and look at these people's pages. So he's looking at these names, and he says, Look, there's this name, it's initials only, but I think you need to reach out to them. And then there's another name, which I know, which is a Greenberg, and you should try and reach this man, Les Greenberg, because a cousin of Les's, is coming up as your second cousin, which means their parent is a first cousin. And if their parent is a first cousin, one of those uncles, uh, uh, brothers, is got to be your father. And I'm like, oh, my God, I couldn't believe that he'd figured all this out. So I'm looking for this man, Les Greenberg, looking at his page. Two things I see. I see a name that's familiar from my childhood, a, person that's about my age that i grew up with in boston is somehow connected to his page and i'm thinking it's got to be her but the other odd thing says is you have a mutual friend named arthur katz arthur katz comes up as a mutual friend to me and miss greenberg and i don't know any greenbergs i say i write to arthur i said do you know this guy and how to reach him and he says yeah hold on a minute. I'll get you his email. I'm like, oh, my God, this is so easy. And so he gives me Les's email, and I email him, and I said, we have a DNA connection, and I'd like to explore it further, and I have some questions, and would you be open to t- talking about it? And he said, sure. So we went back and forth with emails, and um, so I have to stop there for one moment just to say, when I was a kid, maybe 12 or 13, I asked my mother to share her love story with me about her and my dad. How did you meet? What did you have in common? How did you know he was the one? How did you know you wanted to spend the rest of your life with him? What kind of things did you do on dates? And she started the story. Well, she said, first I have to tell you that your dad wasn't my first love, which to a kid, that's kind of shocking. You just kind of think it is. I don't know. At least I did. And so I'm like, yeah, okay. And she said, my first love was hi. And then she went on with the story about my dad. And so now I'm in touch with Les Greenberg, and he sends me an email. And I said to him, tell me who your uncles are. So Les writes me this list of his four uncles. And at the very bottom, and each one has a nickname in parentheses, and at the very bottom it says Ira. And in parentheses it says hi, I knew that was my mother's childhood love, puppy love, who she said her love story started with hi. The odds of that email having nicknames and parentheses was just uh, remarkable. And I'm saying, of these four brothers, who's alive? Anybody alive? And he says, well, out of the four brothers, my uncle hi is alive. I said, oh, my God. Now I can hardly breathe. My father is alive and he's 89 and he's in Florida and for the first time in a long time I'm on the East Coast with my sister in Virginia and Les, I don't tell Les yet that I know that High's got to be my father. I tell him I want. could I speak with High and he says yeah and here's his number and um, I called. I started out with you know, my name. I didn't use my last name. And I said I was doing a DNA family tree search and it looked like, you know, we had some things in common. Would he mind answering some questions? And he was like, no, go ahead. Ask me anything you want. I'm like, great. So did you know a Bryna? Now, it's a most unusual name, actually. So if you ever knew one, you wouldn't forget that you knew one. And he right away said, Bryna? Sure, I knew Bryna. I thought, oh, God, now my heart's really pounding. And I said, "Um, did you know her as a friend within a circle of friends? Uh, Or did you date her? And he said, no, we dated. I'm like, oh, God, here we go. I said, hi, I have a really personal question to ask you. And it's really uncomfortable asking it, but it would really help me greatly. And he said, go ahead, ask me anything you want. I said, did you have sex with her? Did we have sex? Yeah, we had sex. And that's when I really felt like I knew for sure. And this is what I said to him. I said, hi, are you sitting down? And he says, I'm 89. I'm almost always sitting down. And I said, Do you have any heart conditions? And he said, Heart conditions? No, I had a stint about ten years ago, but I'm good. I said, Great. I said, Brian is my mother and I'm ninety nine point nine percent sure you're my father. And there was a moment of silence and he said, Julie, you're blowing my mind. And I thought, oh, my God, I haven't heard that expression since the 60s. And he sounds like quite a character, and I know he's totally shocked. And, and he was very, stand, became standoffish. And he said, I, I don't know what, what made you think that this is true. You don't have my DNA to test. And how did you get my number? So I mentioned all the names, his nephews, his nieces. These are my first cousins that I never knew, and they're his nieces and nephews. I realized he's pretty upset. So I try, like, reroute the direction the conversation was going. And I start to ask him about his life. And we were on the phone for over an hour. But I think towards the beginning, actually, I said, he says to me, well, I don't know what you want from me. What do you want from me? And I started to cry. And I just said, I want you to tell me to come to Florida. I want to meet you.
0: And when we come back, this remarkable story continues There's going to be a trip to Florida, and Julie will be meeting her dad. More of Julie Lawson's story, here on Our American Stories. to our American stories in the last part of this amazing story. Julie Lawson has been telling us how she found out her dad was not really her dad and she then got in contact with her real biological father who lives in Florida. She told him, quote, I want you to tell me to come to Florida. I want to meet you. Julie, what did he say next? He
2: says, come to Florida. Come to Florida? I don't know well, if you want to come, come. I said, no, I'm not going to come with that tone of voice. So I, I redirected the conversation, and he spent an hour telling me about his life and the order of things. And um, he was quite a character. He's funny, and he's got a great, sharp mind. And, I, I mean, actually quite amazing. And... Um, towards the end of the conversation, he said, well, I don't know what else to say. And I said, again, just tell me to come to Florida. I think because maybe I inserted a little Yiddish in the conversation, and I was, I'm a really good listener, and I was so taken by his story, and I had so many questions. I think I softened him a little bit because his tone of voice changed this time. And he said, you want to come to Florida? Come and that was it i said i'm going to try and be there within a couple of weeks and you know that the week that i was able to get a flight turned out to be the weekend of father's day so this started on mother's day and i met my father and shared his first father's day he never married he never had children he didn't know i existed and at 89 he had a daughter and his first father's day well i went to florida and a couple of days right before Father's Day, his nephew, Les, who had sent me that email, lives an hour away and had arranged to meet me. Les met me at the um, independent living home where I was living. Hi opened the door and he reached out his arms to me. He said, welcome home, darling. I tried to keep it together. I mean, there I am with a total stranger. It was very mixed emotions. I almost felt an instant love for him. We had a month of conversations before we met, and we would talk a long, long time. And so I did feel this love, and yet it was weird because he's still a total stranger. My mission in sharing my story is I want to find a way to encourage parents to tell their children the truth. Some people say it's not that black and white an issue, but for me it is. Even taking into consideration children who are born from rape, from incest, from whatever unusual ways it could be. I mean, I, I understand, but I think all children at some age, when it's age appropriate and in a safe emotional environment with a professional, I think we all deserve to know who are biological parents are. It doesn't mean we'll choose to have a relationship with them. And I, I believe all men have a right to know they have offspring on this planet. So I want to encourage people to tell the truth. I know they're afraid. They're afraid of consequences. They're afraid of rocking other boats. They're afraid of being judged. But we can't live our life in fear of what other people think. What they think is none of our business. We need to We need to tell the truth of our lives so that other people get to live the truth of their lives.
0: This is, I think, the deepest part of the story. And I think what I think people are also afraid to do is, in the end, tell the truth of themselves.
2: For my mother, every minute I was a reminder of her indiscretion. The lie she was living.
0: The, the pain that she had to live with her whole
2: life? Oh, yeah. And uh. the longer, the longer she lived the lie, the harder it was to come forward. Okay. Because when my dad died 11 years ago, she could have told me. If she was trying to protect him, she could have told me. And then I was with her the last 10 days of her life, and she was lucid, and she could have told me. She had many opportunities to break free from this self-imposed judgment and shame. You know, she had many years to process it, and she chose not to. And in some ways, it's because she was just incredibly emotionally damaged herself and didn't know how to really do it. But on the other hand, at some point when you're an adult, I think it is your responsibility to look at your crap and process it and try and come out the other side of it. Mm. And um, she just wasn't evolved enough to do anything about her damage. And so instead, she damaged me severely. I grew up thinking I was mentally retarded. That Back then, it was labeled emotionally disturbed. I was taken to shrinks when I was very young. She, was, she just didn't know how to look at me and be loving. I know she loved me, but she couldn't treat me lovingly at all, ever. I'd been disowned. I'd been put on the street. I ran away from home at 15 with nothing on my back but the clothes I was wearing, in the middle of a blizzard i mean i had to do something to save a piece of my soul because i kept thinking i bet i'd be a different person if it weren't for all this stress every day and all her nonsense i i could find out who i am i could just be me instead of going to school and zoning out i can't focus because i'm worrying about what happened last night and what's going to happen when i get home, and I'm feeling so small, and I have no self-esteem, and I'm a loner, and I'm now growing up being abused by my older brother, who I adored, and then he went from being my hero to an abuser. Um, I left home at 15 and went to the streets in New York City. I had a really rough life. I never knew what a parent's love felt like. And I am in love with my birth father. We have so much in common. It's uncanny what we have in common. And we adore one another. And we, we could just, we talk for hours. Sometimes we talk every day, every other day. Um, I just came back from his 90th birthday party. I got to be with my father on his 90th. For his birthday party, he chose four songs to express his feelings through music. Because he said he didn't want to bore everybody, that he'd say a little something between songs. And one of the songs he chose for us was Ella Fitzgerald singing, How Deep is the Ocean. That's how deep his love is for me. And two nights ago, when we were talking, he said, Oh, Julie, having you in my life, he said, You know, I was lucky I was the baby of the family. I was loved by everybody. I had family, but it's so different having a daughter. This kind of love, I mean, you're mine. I have a daughter. I'm 89. This was when he was 89. He first said it. He was crying. I said, why are you crying? He says, I've missed 65 years of knowing my daughter. I had a daughter walking the earth that I didn't get to know. And you know what, Lee? he grew, he, I grew up around the corner from where he was. I could have known him the first 25 years of my life. All the love I missed out on all the things I could have, he, I would have had a soft place to land had I not been the secret.
0: What you still have is such a remarkable gift. And this man, this it man is. had chosen to never, never marry and he had chosen to never have kids. And my goodness, what a gift for him. That's what a what gift for him. He
2: just told me the other night, he said, you've changed my life. He said, I feel so different. I have a daughter. And I said, I know. I said, you could have been a jerk, and I wouldn't have liked you, or I could have been a jerk, and you wouldn't have liked me. But look at us.
0: And uh, by the way, it was clear that you guys, you, you both shared the most important of all things, which is a common sense of humor.
2: He cracks me up. He's a great joke teller. I could never remember jokes. Oh, does he have a slew, and they're pretty good, and he's got a good delivery. To me the other day, he says, You know, Julie, I've been thinking. I said, What you have been thinking about? He said, I've been thinking about what I want on my headstone. I said, Your headstone? He says, Well, you know, I'm 90 years old. You think about these things. I said, Yeah, that makes sense. I said, So what do you want? Did you come up with something? He says, Yeah. I wanted to say, Stop by anytime. I'm always in. <laughs>
0: That's fantastic. He's adorable. Oh, well, lucky you is all I can tell Yeah, you. And I lucky am him. so lucky. Lucky him.
2: Yeah, that's what he says all the time.
0: <laughs> how lucky
2: he is that he has a daughter like me. He said to me, he said, if I had met a woman like you, I'd have married. Wow. How about that? How about Neither that? of my parents ever expressed any joy about my presence in their life. So this is an amazingly cathartic experience for me. I get to be 65 years old and feel this kind of love.
0: And you've been listening to Julie Lawson, and what a story she has to tell. It's a movie, folks. I mean, my goodness, what a movie it would be. And I am sure that as all of this DNA testing happens around this world and around this country, my goodness, these are stories that I would bet are popping up all over the country. And by the way, I think Julie's right. Every parent should tell the truth to their kids when they're ready. And all children at some time do deserve to know who their biological parents are. And I even love the way she said that men, they too deserve to know. And my goodness, when she started to talk about her parents, her life, and how she felt so small, she felt so alone, she felt abused, she left home at 15, She did have a really, really rough life. And my goodness, we know why. When she said those words, neither of my parents ever expressed any kind of joy about having me in their life. It's just like a kick in my gut. And we know why now. The mother had an illegitimate child, and the father knew it. And the father also knew that the mother didn't love him, and she knew it. What a disaster. And what a story, and what courage for telling it. Julie Lawson's story. And my goodness, more people like her, I'm sure, are out there than we know. Julie Lawson's story, her sister's story, and of course, I's story. And in the end, a beautiful love story here on Our American Story. is our American stories and it's graduation season and we wanted to highlight some commencement speeches that have been given over the years some great ones one really really bad one that's so bad it's funny yeah that's right and some of our best Denzel Washington Admiral McRaven's at the University of Texas where by the way he now runs the whole University of Texas system and that one turned into a book called Make Your Bed. And that's how it started off. If you want to do good in the world, well, start by making your bed. Robert De Niro's was classic, and he gave it at NYU. Steve Jobs at Stanford, that was quite a few years back. But we play it every year, because I don't think it gets better than that. And Will Farrell's hilarious USC. <laughs> <laughs> hey, shut up, Chuck. That, by the way, is Chuck Berry. We love playing that, that little outtake and Jesse's always quick on the uptake on the outtake of Chuck Berry that's right and now we're going to go to Conan O'Brien's commencement speech from Dartmouth College in the year 2011 here he starts off complaining about the weather and wondering why he was chosen to come and speak at all
3: I've been living in Los Angeles for two years and I've never been this cold in my life I will pay anyone here $300 for Gore-Tex gloves, anybody. I'm serious, I have the cash. Before I begin, I must point out that behind me sits a highly admired President of the United States and decorated war hero, while I, a cable television talk show host, has been chosen to stand here and impart wisdom. I pray I never witness a more damning example of what is wrong with America today. (laughs) Graduates, faculty, parents, relatives, undergraduates, and old people that just come to these things. Good morning and congratulations to the Dartmouth class of 2011. Today you have achieved something special something only 92% of Americans your age will ever know. A college diploma. That's right, with your college diploma, you now have a crushing advantage over 8% of the workforce. I'm talking about dropout losers like Bill Gates, Steve Jobs, and Mark Zuckerberg. Incidentally, speaking of Mr. Zuckerberg, only at Harvard would someone have to invent a massive social network just to talk with someone in the next room. My first job as your commencement speaker is to illustrate that life is not fair. For example, you have worked tirelessly for four years to earn the diploma you'll be receiving this weekend. That was great. And Dartmouth is giving me the same degree for interviewing the fourth lead in Twilight. Deal with it. Another example that life is not fair if it does rain, the powerful rich people on stage get the tent. Deal with it.
0: Conan goes on to talk about how thankful he is to be there.
3: Though some of you may see me as a celebrity, you should know that I once sat where you sit. Literally. Late last night, I snuck out here and sat in every seat. I did it to prove a point. I'm not bright, and I have a lot of free time. But this is a wonderful occasion, it's great to be here in New Hampshire where I am getting an honorary degree and all the legal fireworks I can fit in the trunk of my car. You know, New Hampshire is such a special place. When I arrived I took a deep breath of this crisp New England air and thought, wow, I'm in this state that's next to the state where Ben and Jerry's ice cream is made. But don't get me wrong, I take my task today very seriously. When I got the call two months ago to be your speaker, I decided to prepare with the same intensity many of you have devoted to an important term, paper. So late last night, I began. I drank two cans of Red Bull, snorted some Adderall, played a few hours of Call of Duty, and then opened my browser. I think Wikipedia put it best when they said Dartmouth College is a private Ivy League university in Hanover, New Hampshire, United States. Thank you and good luck.
0: Now, before Conan came to give his speech, he decided to do some research about the school. He also complains about the podium that he's using that is just one huge fake tree stump.
3: This college was named after the second Earl of Dartmouth, a good friend of the third Earl of UC Santa Cruz, and the Duke of the Barbizon School of Beauty. <laughs> Your school motto is Vox Clamantis in deserto, which means voice crying out in the wilderness. This is easily the most pathetic school motto I have ever heard. <laughs> Apparently it narrowly beat out silently weeping in thick shrub <laughs> and whimpering in moist leaves without pants. Your school color is green. And this color was chosen by Frederick Mather in 1867 because, and this is true. I looked it up. quote, "It was the only color that had not been taken already." <laughs> I cannot remember hearing anything so sad. Dartmouth, you have an inferiority complex, and you should not. You have graduated more great, fictitious Americans than any other college) <laughs> Meredith Grey of Grey's Anatomy. (laughs) Pete Campbell from Mad Men. Michael Corleone from The Godfather. Now I know what you're gonna say, Dartmouth. You're gonna say, well, we've got Dr. Seuss. Well, guess what? We're all tired of hearing about Dr. Seuss. Face it, the man rhymed fufloozle with sasnoozle. In the literary community, that's called cheating. Your insecurity is so great Dartmouth that you don't even think you deserve a real podium. I'm sorry, what the hell is this thing? It looks like you stole it from the set of Survivor Nova Scotia. Seriously, it looks like something a bear would use at an AA meeting. No Dartmouth, you must stand tall, raise your heads high and feel proud. Because if Harvard, Yale and Princeton are your self-involved, vain, name-dropping older brothers. You are the cool, sexually confident, lacrosse-playing younger sibling who knows how to throw a party and looks good in a down vest.
0: And when we come back, more from Conan O'Brien's commencement speech at Dartmouth College in 2011. This is our American Stories, and we continue with Conan O'Brien's commencement speech at Dartmouth College in 2011. Here, Conan decides to make his speech more memorable. He suggests some changes.
3: You are a great school, and you deserve a historic commencement address. That's right. I want my message today to be forever remembered, because it changed the world. To do this, I must suggest groundbreaking policy. Winston Churchill gave his famous Iron Curtain speech at Westminster College in 1946. JFK outlined his nuclear disarmament policy at American University in 1963. Today, I would like to set forth my own policy here at Dartmouth. I call it the Conan Doctrine. Under the Conan Doctrine, all bachelor degrees will be upgraded to master's degrees. All master's degrees will be upgraded to PhDs. And all MBA students will be immediately transferred to a white-collar prison. (laughs) Under the Conan Doctrine, Winter Carnival will become Winter Carnival and be moved to Rio. (laughs) Clothing will be optional, all expenses paid by the Alumni Association. Your nickname, the Big Green, will be changed to something more kick-ass, like the Jade Blade the Seafoam Avenger, or simply Limezilla. The D-Plan and quarter system will finally be updated to the 164th system. Semesters will last three days. Students will be encouraged to take 48 semesters off. They must, however, be on campus during their sophomore 4th of July. And finally, under the Conan Doctrine, all commencement speakers who shamelessly pander with cheap inside references designed to get childish applause, will be forced to apologize to the greatest graduating class in the history of the world, Dartmouth class of 2011 rolls.:
0: And of course, he has some advice for both graduates and parents.
3: Well, today, I'm not going to waste your time with empty cliches. Instead, I'm going to give you real practical advice that you will need to know if you're going to survive the next few years. First, adult acne lasts longer than you think. I almost canceled two days ago because I had a zit on my eye. Guys, this is important. You cannot iron a shirt while wearing it. Here's another one. If you live on ramen noodles for too long, you lose all feelings in your hands and your stool becomes a white gel. And finally, wearing colorful Converse high tops beneath your graduation robe is a great way to tell your classmates that this is just the first of many horrible decisions you plan to make for the rest of your life. Of course, there are many parents here, and I have real advice for them as well. Parents, you should write this down. Many of your children, you haven't seen them in four years. Well, now you're about to see them every day when they come out of the basement to tell you the Wi-Fi isn't working. (laughs) If your child majored in fine arts or philosophy, you have good reason to be worried. The only place they are now really qualified to get a job is ancient Greece. (laughs) Good luck with that degree. The traffic today on East Wheelock is going to be murder, so once they start handing out diplomas, you should slip out in the middle of the Ks. And I have to tell you this, you will spend more money framing your child's diploma than they will earn in the next six months. It's tough out there, so be patient. The only people hiring right now are Panera Bread and Mexican drug cartels.
0: Although he expresses it through humor, he does have some important and helpful things to tell the class using his own failure As an example,
3: I came here today because, believe it or not, I actually do have something real to tell you. Eleven years ago, I gave an address to a graduating class at Harvard. I have not spoken at a graduation since because I thought I had nothing left to say. But then 2010 came. And now I'm here 3,000 miles from my home because I learned a hard but profound lesson last year, and I have to share it with you. In 2000, I told graduates, don't be afraid to fail. Well, now I'm here to tell you that though you should not fear failure, you should do your very best to avoid it. (laughs) Nietzsche famously said, whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger. What he failed to stress is that it almost kills you. (laughs) (laughs) Disappointment stings, and for driven successful people like yourselves, it is disorienting. What Nietzsche should have said is, whatever doesn't kill you makes you watch a lot of Cartoon Network and drink mid-price Chardonnay at 11 in the morning. Now, by definition, commencement speakers at an Ivy League college are considered successful. But a little over a year ago, I experienced a profound and very public disappointment. I did not get what I wanted, and I left a system that had nurtured and helped define me for the better part of 17 years. I went from being in the center of the grid to not only off the grid, but underneath the coffee table that the grid sits on, lost in the shag carpeting that is underneath the coffee table supporting the grid. It was the making of a career disaster and a terrible analogy. <laughs> but then something spectacular happened. Fog-bound, with no compass and adrift, I started trying things. I grew a strange cinnamon beard. I dove into the world of social media. I started tweeting my comedy. I threw together a national tour. I played the guitar. I did stand-up, wore a skin-tight blue leather suit... Recorded an album Made a documentary And frightened my friends and family (laughs) Ultimately, I abandoned All preconceived perceptions Of my career path and stature And took a job on basic cable With a network most famous For showing reruns Along with sitcoms Created by a tall black man Who dresses like an old black woman (laughs) I did a lot of silly Unconventional, spontaneous And seemingly irrational things And guess what? With the exception Of the blue leather suit It was the most satisfying and fascinating year of my professional life. (laughs) To this day, I still don't understand exactly what happened. But I have never had more fun, been more challenged, and this is important, had more conviction about what I was doing. How could this be true? Well, it's simple. There are few things more liberating in this life than having your worst fear realized. I went to college with many people who prided themselves on knowing exactly who they were and exactly where they were going. At Harvard, five different guys in my class told me they would one day be president of the United States. Four of them were later killed in motel shootouts. The other ones briefly hosted Blue's Clues before dying senselessly in yet another motel shootout. Your path at 22 will not necessarily be your path at 32 or 42. One's dream is constantly evolving. Rising and falling, changing course.
0: And finally, while failure is difficult, it may be the very thing that brings you success.
3: The point is this. It is our failure to become our perceived ideal that ultimately defines us and makes us unique. It's not easy. But if you accept your misfortune and handle it right, your perceived failure can become a catalyst for profound reinvention. So at the age of 47 after 25 years of obsessively pursuing my dream, that dream changed. For decades in show business, the ultimate goal of every comedian was to host The Tonight Show. It was the Holy Grail. And like many people, I thought that achieving that goal would define me as successful. But that is not true. No specific job or career goal defines me, and it should not define you. In 2000, I told graduates to not be afraid to fail. And I still believe that. But today I tell you that whether you fear it or not, disappointment will come. The beauty is that through disappointment you can gain clarity, and with clarity comes conviction and true originality. Many of you here today are getting your diploma at this Ivy League school because you have committed yourself to a dream and worked hard to achieve it. And there is no greater cliche in a commencement address than follow your dream. Well, I'm here to tell you, that whatever you think your dream is now, it will probably change, and that's okay. Four years ago, many of you had a specific vision of what your college experience was going to be and who you were going to become. And I bet today most of you would admit that your time here was very different from what you imagined. Your roommates changed, your major changed, but through the good, and especially the bad, the person you are now is someone you could never have conjured in the fall of 2007. I've told you many things today, Most of it foolish, but some of it true. I'd like to end my address by breaking a taboo and quoting myself from 17 months ago. (laughs) At the end of my final program with NBC, just before signing off, I said, work hard, be kind, and amazing things will happen. Today, receiving this honor and speaking to the Dartmouth class of 2011 from behind a tree trunk, I have never believed that more. Thank you very much and congratulations.
0: And there you have it, Conan O'Brien's address. This is Lee Habib. This is our American Stories commencement month, all month long, month of May, much of month of June. We'll be playing the best, the worst, some from famous folks, a couple from just high school kids who hit it out of the park, and one pro- college professor whose speech was just so terrible. Jesse's going to have to add the rim shots. And this will be one of the few times we'll actually be laughing at somebody on the show. Because, well, you just have to. This is Our American Stories. continue with our American stories and it's time for our American Dreamers series which is sponsored by the great folks at the Job Creators Network and they're dedicated to helping small businesses grow into big ones by driving public policy that allows just that and our own Alex Cortez brings us the story of someone that you likely don't know named Donald Baumgartner but you'll be glad to have met him.
4: I was born in 1930, which is the beginning of the Depression. Prospects were not good for the economy, for the country, for my parents, for anybody, as a matter of fact. It was not a really wonderful time to be born, but my parents were both well-educated in a vocational sort of way. I mean, they didn't go to fancy colleges, but they went to trade schools. My mother graduated from Mosier. My dad took courses in engineering. And he had a good job when he married my mother in 1929. But when the Depression hit, he was out of work. It got interesting for a while. One summer, he had his speedboat and he gave speedboat rides. And we lived in a tent on Miller Beach in Indiana. But eventually, when the summer ended, he took the family up to the farm in Minnesota and we all milked cows. I know he was totally miserable back on the farm. This is not a direction he wanted to go in. And my mother would happily made him even more miserable because she hated the farm and farm life. She was a city girl from Chicago. Dad got a job offer as a tool maker. And then from there, got a job as an engineer in Milwaukee. And while he was working there, he learned of the need for a job shop. A
1: small manufacturer that only does custom jobs.
4: When he started buying machine tools and started in the garage doing job shop work, eventually that grew to a point where he didn't need to work anymore. I was born very fortunately. I like to say I was born on third base, but I was damn well aware that I hadn't hit a triple. I mean, I say it with all humility, I had a really good head start. My success could not have happened without the family that I had in back of me and without all of the push that I got from them and all of the work ethic that I was taught. I mean, this was a wonderful family. My mother and father were divorced in 1939, and they each married somebody that I truly adored. I had a great stepmother and a great stepfather. So what I wound up with in life is, talk about being blessed, is I had four really good parents. I mean, and they were very different. My stepfather, was a baseball player, played for the New York Giants, and he was a professional golfer. And he was a funny guy. He told jokes continuously. He's it's like having any young man as your stepfather. He had lines like, you can't put a feather in a chicken's ass and call it a peacock. He went to North Division High School. And North Division, when he went there, was pretty much in the center of the Jewish community. And he swears that their fight song was, Kefilte fish, to fish, we're the boys from North devish Easy, Ikey, Maury, Sam, we're the guys that eat no ham. I mean, the guy was a riot. I mean, I was crazy about him. In 1940, he got drafted, went off to war, wrote me letters from Africa, from Sicily, from Italy, from France, from Germany. I mean, he was with Patton and he, was, he made the invasion at Casablanca, spent the entire war in Europe. I mean, he made every major invasion. He was in Palermo, he was at Anzio. He made an invasion in the south of France. I don't know what, he liberated down there, but- He saw the,
1: the topless beaches. I
4: think he, he made the beaches for- For St. Tropez. <laughs> for for topless uh, yeah. sunbathing. I mean, it wasn't much of an invasion in the south of France, but anyhow, he did move in on into Germany. He had quite a war record, and in the meantime, my dad's business grew and grew and grew. It got bigger and bigger. He was making parts for the war effort. When we got attacked at Pearl Harbor, we went to work. We built, in a four year period, 22 aircraft carriers.
1: American manufacturers did.
4: It's mind boggling what people can do when they're put to it, and Americans can do. I mean, We just absolutely, tanks were coming out. God, they were flying off the end of the assembly line. The tanks, the guns, all of the equipment you need, the trucks, all the war machinery that you needed, we produced and produced in mass. And this is a country coming out of a depression, coming out of some really hard times. Detroit became the arsenal of the world. My dad's company was making parts for all of these things. He was making parts for the airplanes, for the predecessors of the DC-10. For tanks, and he started out with a small machine shop with a handful of employees. By the time the war was over, he had 300 employees. And it's American ingenuity that got us to where we were in those wars. I mean, my God, before America came into World War II, things were looking pretty damn grim with Nazi Germany and Imperial Japan. But how did we win the war? Through our production genius. American know-how, American business, Let it all.
1: At several points, while Donald was talking about America's arsenal of democracy, he almost seemed to cry.
4: Well, I get emotional about some of the things that we've done, an emotion of pride more than anything. Yeah, I get choked up over the pride of our nation, pride of what we can accomplish, pride of what we've done. It's pretty impressive. For some reason or other, my parents thought of me as being incredibly capable at 10. I mean, my mother had a restaurant, and I started out by washing dishes, then waiting on counters. By the time I'm 13, I'm in back of the griddle, you know, cooking. I mean, she just brought me right up through the ranks. And when I wasn't working for my mother, if I'd go visit my father, I mean, he put me to work as well. When he we started this Milwaukee shipbuilding thing, At the end of the war, my dad bought a used Coast Guard cutter, surplus. They were all these Navy vessels and Coast Guard vessels were surplus because there was way too many of them at the end of the war. And so we took the one Coast Guard cutter and I helped him with it. We brought it from Maryland to Milwaukee. He left me in Baltimore. What the hell, I was 15 years old and he said, you need to hire a crew. So I put an ad in the Baltimore, I'm 15 years old, I put an ad in the Baltimore Sun. I, I I hired a deckhand and I hired a cook. And got the boat across the East Coast through New York City, through the Hudson, up through the Trent Canal, the Erie Canal, all the damn way to Milwaukee. I mean, I'm 15 years old. It's a hell of a lot of responsibility for a kid. My mother left me She and my stepfather, the baseball player and golfer, moved to Florida when I was in high school and left me to run the restaurant and the used car lot that was in back of the restaurant and the sign that was on top of the restaurant for Miller Brewery. I was in charge of getting all this done and sending her these rent checks for the used car lot, for the restaurant, for the sign, and take care of her house on Menlo Boulevard. So I grew up without a hell of a lot of parental supervision because my mother took off for the winter. Left me at home with a maid by the name of Lila, who was a dwarf. She was three feet tall. Needless to say, I had a lot of really nice parties in high school. I became very popular. Lila was fine with the parties. I mean, she, she wasn't much of a disciplinarian. I'm afraid my parents would probably be jailed today for the responsibilities And the freedom they gave me. I mean, I had total freedom and also I had total responsibility. It comes with that freedom. Was that a better way to raise a kid? Well, maybe, maybe not. I'm not sure. It worked out for me just fine.
0: And if you're enjoying Donald's voice and story, and we are here in the studio, you can get even more of it in his terrific book, With the Wind at His Back, The Charmed and Charitable Life of Donald Baumgartner, which you can pick up at Amazon.com. After these messages from our sponsors, the rest of Donald's story here on Our American Stories. continue with our American stories and return to Donald Baumgartner's story.
4: It's an interesting segue, isn't it? How the hell do you go from shipbuilding to paper cup machines? Well, I was managing Milwaukee shipbuilding and when the Korean War ended, I have a couple, three engineers, I've got a bunch of assemblers, I've got a small shop Having done all this Korean War work, now we've got nothing much to do. And so we started looking for products. And one of the products we came up with was a paper cup forming machines, something my dad had done earlier, back in the 30s. He'd made a machine for making the pleated cups that you see used for souffles and ramekins in dentist office sometimes. They're still out there. They're flat bottom, all pleated cup. And then we came up with a code cup and then we knew the direction that we wanted to go was a flat-bottom two-piece paper cup, which is a typical coffee cup. And we designed and developed a machine to do that and offered it to Milwaukee Shipbuilding Corporation. The name of the company no longer seemed very fitting, so we changed the name to Paper Machinery Corporation. That was about 1956. Nobody thinks about it. Somebody made a machine that made a paper cup. I mean, why would they think about that at all? It's just there. We had a hard time finding a market for the two-piece cup forming machines because all of these two-piece cups that were on the market were formed by three or four very large companies, Dixie, it's a household name, Lily Tulip, another household name, Solo Cup, Continental Can. And these four companies made their own machines and were not anxious for me to be selling machines to start up competitors of theirs. So the going was pretty slow here. They wouldn't buy any because they didn't want us to succeed. So I turned to a foreign market. I started traveling overseas and I sold machines in Cuba and Venezuela, sold machines in England and God knows, in Italy. By the time I was 30, I think I'd been to every major country in the world and sold machines in Israel and in Turkey and where the hell else, some very remote places in the world and cone cup making machines were very popular in third world countries because they use them for ice with flavored ice. They pour ice on it with a strawberry flavor and put it in this little cone cup. And it didn't really take off big until we sold machines into Japan. Coffee started to get very popular in Japan. And all of a sudden they're starting to buy machines in quantities, so things really started to move for us pretty well. Herb Geiger who's running vending machines here in Milwaukee and buying coffee cups for his vending machines. He doesn't like the price he's paying for his coffee cups, so he thinks he'd like to make his own. So we sold it to Herb Geiger, and this was our entree into the American market. One machine wasn't anywhere near enough, pretty soon he bought 10 machines. Then other vendors from around the country were seeing making his own cups rather than paying the premium that they had to pay for the traditional suppliers of paper cups. So they started buying machines in quantity and all of a sudden we're selling machines in lots of 10 and 20. I mean, everything fell into place for me. I'm making machines to make paper cups and along comes Ray Kroc.
1: The founder
4: of McDonald's. With a massive need for paper disposables. And then if that wasn't good enough, then all of a sudden coffee became the beverage of choice. And all of a sudden, our business is booming. I mean, I started out with very little prospects. And we got lucky. So what was the key to my success? Well, a hell of a lot of it was just good fortune or good luck, I think. For 40 years, I was profitable. Never had a loss in 40 straight years. But being the sole owner of the company... I had a lot of options as to what to do with all those profits. And what I did, for the most part, was put it back into facility, back into new products, back into new machinery, back into wages and better people. I poured almost all of the profits directly back into the the business, 90% or more.
1: Instead of in his own bank account.
4: Uh, Yeah, because I like to live well. I like nice cars, I like nice clothes. I mean, I like, you know, hot women. I mean, all, that, all those things are expensive, and especially maybe the last one. I mean, but uh, the company always came first. There was never a question in my mind, ever, 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 if it was a matter of a new machine tool or a new sports car, the machine tool always won. I mean, the company always came first. And that was a matter of principle that I stuck to without ever a variation for the entire length, I was there almost 60 years with that company, so that's how long it was. When my son John, who's in his late 60s, starts talking to me about transitioning, I'm thinking, Jesus, John is president of the company, and he wants to quit. What the hell am I gonna do? You know, I come to work every day, I've still got my feet in, I'm still involved, I'm still engaged. At 85 years old, at this point. And I'm not really anxious to quit. And I'm trying to think of some way that I could, you know, maintain a position for myself and sell the company and take care of John. And so we brought in Baird, we brought in Foley, our attorneys, and they discussed selling to a strategic buyer. And the immediate concern came to my mind is, where the hell are my employees gonna, gonna happen to my employees if they sell to a strategic buyer and they move the company out of town? In fact, my dad, twice he sold companies that he built, and twice the companies were moved out of state. Once to California, one to Illinois. He sold a company to Rockwell International and that wound up out of state and wound up with almost none of the employees staying with the company. And I felt badly about that because I you know, was close to my dad. I knew all of his employees pretty well. And I felt that I didn't want to be involved in the same sort of thing. Then I heard about ESOP, and I started studying it and thinking about it.
1: ESOP stands for Employee Stock Ownership Plan. It's basically a fancy way of saying that Don could give the ownership of the company to his employees, and they could decide to keep the business where it was forever.
4: I brought it up to Baird and I brought it up to Foley and Lardner. And my Foley attorneys said that, no way, it's just the wrong way to go. An ESOP is a terrible idea. But the more the attorneys advised me against it, the more hell-bent on it I was. Well, they thought I could get a hell of a lot more money as a strategic sale than I could as an ESOP. I probably left a hundred million dollars on the table, or maybe more. I don't know. I never even looked for a strategic buyer because I didn't want the company to go out of state. I didn't want these guys to lose their jobs. It was it was way too important to me that the company stay where it was, and an ESOP it proved to be the right answer. And i had enough money to put away anyhow, so that I wasn't I was comfortable enough. I didn't need another hundred million, I guess. And with all that extra money, it's just I was just gonna give it away anyhow. We had a good time turning it over. We, John and I planned and Donna helped. We put a tent up in the parking lot and hired a band We put it in a bar. All day, people are wondering what the hell's going on in the parking lot. At the end of the shift, I called everybody out. They all come into the tent. There's about 250 people in the tent. And I decided to bore them to death and tease the shit out of them by telling long stories about the history of the company. And I said, I suppose you're all wondering, you know, where we're going next. Well, it's true, we have sold the company. I'd like you to meet the new buyers. And they're all looking around. I said, turn to your neighbor because it's you. And they started screaming and applauding and jumping up and down. And we got pictures of this, and they were pictures were taken for the newspaper, and they were above the fold, in Seattle and 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 Los Angeles, down in New Orleans, in Atlanta. We were, about, we were we were a picture, a picture of our employees jumping up and down with the ESOP, hit the media across the country. I mean, we got an enormous amount of publicity over this. <laughs> I said to one of the employees about the ESOP. I said, Well, Rich, this is going to sure change your life. You can retire a millionaire said, Mr. Baumgartner, I'm already a millionaire. So apparently the 401k program, which we've encouraged and done, worked out very well. I've always believed in paying top wages, believed in giving top benefits to attract the best people we can, because I'm smart enough to know that I'm not smart enough to do this by myself. I need people, good people, and lots of them.
0: And what a story and what a voice. And as he said, the company always comes first. And the end companies are people. Uh, They're not, well, they're not anything but people. And Donna and and Donald, and Donna's his bride, have made millions, multi millions of dollars worth of contributions to Milwaukee's arts centers. And my goodness, go to Milwaukee sometime and you'll see for a city that size, it punches way beyond its weight. A friend of Donald's named Nancy Ihorn says that he's, quote, lived three times in the time that others live just once. An attitude towards life that's leading him to race McLarens on ice in the Arctic Circle at 88 years old. And if you enjoy Donald's voice and story, you can get so much more of it in his book, With the Wind at His Back, The Charmed and Charitable Life of Donald Baumgartner. He's the founder of Paper Machinery Corporation, in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, to see what Donald saw, to see his father supply the parts and all of the equipment that ultimately built the arsenal of democracy that helped save the world. He put it best when he said it was American ingenuity, American know-how, American business that saved Western civilization. And indeed, it did. Donald Baumgartner's story, here on Our American Stories.